Big Fluff. you to be here in the frozen food section. Why is that? Because you could melt all this stuff. <gasps> By the way, my name's Chaldine. Hiya, Chaldine. What's yours? My name's Todd. Todd? That's a beautiful name. It's Italian for extra special. I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Andy McIntyre. And this is Silver Linings Playback, the podcast where we watch maligned movies and we find their silver linings. Uh, And because almost three years of watching movies of varying quality basically broke us as human beings, uh, we decided as we lead into our third anniversary that we're going to pick some movies that we love uh, that maybe don't have the best critical perception or deserve an extra light shined on them. And we're wrapping that month up uh, with My Blue Heaven. And here to talk about that with us from Hobo Radio is Lars Periwinkle. What's up, Lars? Uh, n- not, not much. Not, not much. Um, I hope y'all are well. Um, how pissed were you when you um, figured out this could have been your format the whole time? <laughs> Watching movies that we don't hate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because I, I got to tell you, I'm a fan of the show, but I did not listen in the month of March. <laughs> so you're not getting me to watch any of those movies. It was it was rough. It was it was <laughs> not my favorite month. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's nice, though, because I feel like then you appreciate the, you know, the months like this. You know, you, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them all, and then you have Silver Linings Playback. Yeah, That's a, yeah, yeah that I was. Theme song. That sounds really good. Is that original? Yeah, I just wrote that. I just made that nice. up right on the spot. That, w- that was Alan Thick. I'm not going to sit by <laughs> idly and watch you take credit for Alan Thick's work. Fair enough. What? So the um, only person who can profit off of Alan Thick's name is Robin Thick. Is that how it works? <laughs> I um, yeah, no, I've I've really been it, like I'm I'm so glad to be here today, and I've been really happy listening for the past couple of weeks. It was it was hard for me to listen to. I think it was a your one of the previous two episodes was Temple of Doom, and th- the amount of times I just wanted to pipe in just to say, yeah, it is awesome, <laughs> just like that, just like the way you said it was that awesome thing. Yes, yes, correct. Well, I, I will say that up top, and it's funny because uh, we originally invited you to do. Uh, the dirty work with us but i think that this month uh more than any month that we've had is the most you could have been the guest on any week <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> where uh, for people that don't know if I, I imagine maybe there's people that only listen to this show and don't listen to hobo radio but lars and i have been friends since high school and have very similar taste in movies which is why i think our friendship has endured we we talk about movies quite a bit and particularly with dirty work and with this movie the reason that we landed on this one is because i would go out on record to say he and i are probably 
the biggest lovers slash defenders of my blue heaven on the planet. Yeah. And it's not even that we're defenders. We don't need to defend it because no one's seen it. We promote it. We actively yeah. promote this movie and tell people like it's a, it, it's just a joy to watch start to finish. And you're right. We bonded over that because pretty much those are our conversations that no one else can participate in because they don't know what the fuck we're talking about. <laughs> what the heck we're talking about. I don't know. Do you curse on this show? Yes, we do. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I think it's also important to note that uh, that Joel and Lars did invent the two white guys musing about pop culture format for podcasts. Look, it's not, you know, a lot of people do it, but we've been doing it longer. So that's, yes. <laughs> that's really our it's, claim to it's fame. It's damn close. It's, it's, a, it's, it's probably a, a, a 67-way tie. But <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing it the longest without being in any way famous for it, I think. Yes, yes. We we were the ones that have been doing it and been actively losing money over yes, it. 100%. Uh, so the real heroes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You should all feel bad for us, probably. But I will say, yeah, that perhaps of we've done over 150 movies at this point. And I think that, Lars, you're right. I would dare say that this might be the most unfairly overlooked movie that we've done that this movie in my mind is not only good but should be at least a cult classic if not a just classic and i don't know why in in this era um in this era where we're really um uh, the zeitgeist has been focused on the late 80s to the mid 90s and looking at all the culture of that area um era including the movies why this hasn't come up especially with the resurgence i want to say in the last 5 years of people really remembering how much they loved rick moranis when they were younger people and still still it does like honey i shrunk the kids is all over the place now and still this one gets overlooked i don't get we got ghostbusters we got honey i shrunk the kids but no no love for rick moranis in this movie and he's great in this movie. He's fantastic. Oh, I, I, I think we should put a huge pin in that because that was one of my biggest silver linings. Spoilers. Um, yeah, this movie. There is absolutely nothing wrong with this movie. Right. And that's yeah, like. And that's what I think is going to make the first half of this podcast a little difficult um, in that, like. It's really competently made. It's really funny when it's meant to be funny it's really poignant when it's meant to be poignant but at the same time like as someone who doesn't share the historical affinity for this there's nothing about it that like is like burning your brain memorable like if you build up a love for it it's gonna be there but um like this movie doesn't have that iconic scene it has a bunch of great scenes but you know it doesn't have like to use another Rick Moranis movie of when he's about to eat his son in the, the Cheerios, where it's like, oh, that's a scene that everybody remembers. Like those, from those kind of trailer shots. From Ghostbusters, yeah. yeah. Uh, from uh, <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. Um, that's the other thing. You have two other people that are in Little Shop of Horrors in this movie, you know. Yeah, like I did, it didn't occur to me until this. Um, I, I'm going to say this most recent watching, but... <clears throat> I kind of got I got I kind of got scheduled for this show just a couple of days ago and um we had switched movies and I was actually going out of town for um my uh, wedding anniversary. So I was going to watch this again, but as I started to watch it, I was like it's so ingrained in me. I know every beat, so I just started to skim through it and I realized that every time every time um Steve Martin is playing a person who is uh, being a bad member of society. It's to facilitate Rick Moranis hooking up with a tall lady. <laughs> 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 so I'm, I'm pretty sure somewhere in New York City in 1984, right before Gozer the Gozerian was released, um, Steve Martin was someplace being really cool and sexy. <laughs> I think the, the biggest difference between Little Shop of Horrors and My Blue Heaven is that Audrey is a character that uh, that uh, Steve Martin would date in this movie. Mm -hmm. She's yes. like 100% she would be one of his wives. But yeah. 
Yes, but yes, but no, 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 not not um not Joan Cusack because he likes some I don't know kind of dirty or something. <laughs> he likes a little more Sheldine than uh, yeah, Joan yeah, yeah. Cusack. And look, you're don't absolutely right, Andy. It's this movie does not take a lot of risks. Like no. it's it's not saccharine, but it doesn't um it doesn't look. This guy is uh is a mobster. And he does testify on in a trial about one man murdering another man, but it's a really quick scene just to establish that. And then the rest of the mafia stuff, you know, it's it's taking place in sort of, you know, suburban Orange County-ish, San Diego-ish area. So, like, it's not – it never gets dark. It never gets gritty. It, it, it also, like, you know, there's – they use – they use – um. Um, some adult language, but really sparingly. And I think really, really well, there's one F bomb and it's probably one of my favorites in movie history. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's not memorable unless you really love it. Yeah. Which we should also, by the way, because we haven't set it up and if people are listening and they haven't seen the movie, it's actually a very simple setup. And I kind of love this about it. The movie was written by Nora Ephron and she, at the time that she wrote this, was married to the guy who wrote Goodfellas, and they were both... Nicholas Pileggi. Yeah, Nicholas Pileggi, and they were both, I guess, like, invested in the, um, like, the story of Henry Hill, and she wrote this, and he wrote Goodfellas, and this actually came out, I think, a month or two before Goodfellas did. So it's a prequel. It is a pre. Well, it's a it's a it's sequel. A prequel sequel. No, Goodfellas is a prequel to this. Goodfellas is the prequel, yes. But uh, but yeah, it's so if you haven't seen it, it takes place. So Goodfellas ends with him talking about how he ordered spaghetti uh, and marinara and he got noodles and ketchup noodles and ketchup. And And he's a schnook and he's a schnook. (laughs) And essentially, that's the opening scene of this movie is that Steve Martin is playing essentially the same character and he's being taken to his suburban house. And then it's it takes off from there. And it's yeah, he I I think that's one of the things, too, that it's like it's there in Goodfellas, but Goodfellas isn't minding the comedy of it of like, yeah, this guy's in the witness protection program, but he sticks out like a sore thumb immediately in suburbia. Just everything about him. He does not fit in everything. Right. And look, I just I don't think I noticed it until this time, because this is again, this is the last time I'll say it, but I can replay this movie in my head anytime I watch. Yes. And when I was watching it this time, um, it just struck me that, you know, Steve Martin is uh, is a kind of a classically sort of handsome guy, you know, and he's he's a goofy comedian, but he's handsome. Um, with his hair like that and the, uh, you know, the uh, expensive Italian suits. Is he hot? I think he might be hot. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I mean, it's you can debate whether he's hot or not up until the point where he dances with that woman in that hip movement. And yes, that's hot. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, hot. it's hot. I was like, damn, Steve Martin is actually pretty damn sexy in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it is funny. Yeah, what the hair does for him and just, yeah, the character. And it's fascinating, too, because I I've never read the trivia for this. This is just a movie that to me was always on HBO and I watched it growing up over and over again. And I've seen it 8 million times, but I've never like read about it. And apparently he was originally supposed to play the Barney Cooper Smith part. And that's very strange to me because I think that not only is that a completely different movie, I think it's the wrong movie. I think we got the right version. Well, and the fact that um, the mobster uh, was originally pitched to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, that's a terrible movie. Like it's Arnold a terrible Schwarzenegger movie. trying to play the Ray Liotta part from <laughs> from Goodfellas is not good. <laughs> yeah, that's horrible. I, I think always want to be a gangster. I want to be a gangster. Yeah, cuz I think he had just come off of um playing a gangster in a movie called Raw Deal and I just want to double check to make sure I'm not making this up, but I think the the other person um in raw deal where he was playing a gangster is um oh you know what it was robert davy never mind for some reason i i thought it was belushi <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is a and I, look i love arnold schwarzenegger as an actor and i love him as a comedic actor but the i think the point of this character is that he's not physically intimidating he 
survives by how quick witted he is and just like how and it's like I just think it's a very different movie if classic bodybuilder muscle man Arnold Schwarzenegger is the one who needs protecting and who is like it's like why don't you just punch your way out of this why are you right, bothering right, right, right. to talk about yeah it Italian seems like he was well he was trying to, it seems like he was trying to make that comedic turn to kind of open up more options in his career after you know the heyday of the, the action movies in the 80s and instead of um doing this movie he got offered kindergarten cop so which is the he right went, choice that yeah, was the right that. choice we won that twice amazing yeah we mm-hmm. won twice because he did kindergarten cop which is great it's not a tumor and steve martin got to slide over to the spot in this movie that he should be in straight up and look andy to your point n- not a tumor yeah. There was no there was no tumor line in this movie. There, <laughs> it just wasn't. If someone doesn't know anything else about Kindergarten Cop, they know it's not a tumor. Mm-hmm. Not a tumor. <laughs> yeah, this um Yeah, I think one thing I I texted to Joel while watching this movie is and I think I mean it as a compliment, but it also could count as maligning. I was like, this is the most TBS movie that I've ever seen. Like this no. is a this is like the exact movie that you'd be flipping around on a Saturday afternoon when you got to TBS. This would be on, and like it's just everything about it screams or Comedy Central for that matter. Mm-hmm. Just it's like that movie that's on TV, and I'm not sure if this is the first time I've seen this or I've seen this movie a thousand times. I don't know. Well, and it is, and again to the point that Lars is making at the top too. Like I said, it was always on HBO. We had HBO when I was growing up, and it was a movie that whatever part of it, it it was on, I would just roll with it. Does it have 10 minutes left? I'll watch the last 10 minutes. Did it just start 20 minutes ago? Sure, I'll roll with it. And I even kind of had that where, because I've seen all of this movie so many times that even watching the beginning, you have that feeling where you're like, I haven't seen this opening scene as many times as I've seen (laughs) the later scenes. Like, I do remember this scene where they come into the house and his wife leaves him, but it's not as etched into my brain as say like, you know, the dancing scene or the interrogation with Joan Cusack, where he's explaining that uh, Thanksgiving is really big in Italy on account of all the Italians who have gone Uh back. He got sent back. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't, I think, you know, Really thinking about it, because I, you know, thank you for having me on the show for no other reason, if for no other reason, the fact that I never really thought about the movie. Right. And thinking about it, it's usually, um, especially in this era of comedies, these, this was an era of comedies that had really broad ideas. You know, they were, it wasn't just like, um, you know, a Judd Apatow um, joint of like we're examining, you know, a part of life in a certain time and place with these characters or whatever. It And it wasn't like um, it also wasn't, you know, back in the day, the kind of screwball comedies. This was an era of like these really broad ideas like what if, you know, um, what if idiots were f- successful pirates you know what I mean? Or or um, what if there was a, a group of kids who were searching for treasure? That's two pirate references. What am I doing? <laughs> um, You're thinking th- about but- Kihoi Kwan, though. <laughs> that, that's exactly what I was doing. <laughs> yep. And um, this, this movie doesn't really... It starts with that. Like, what if a mob guy was put in this situation? But there isn't a bad guy. There's no real plot. There's like one guy doing something and another guy kind of coming into a different part of his life. And that's it. It's not a series of vignettes. It's not a series of sketches, but it's also not a movie where like there's a goal (laughs) or a villain or someone stopping anyone from really doing anything. Well, I mean, weirdly, it's kind of a sneaky romantic comedy. Again, it's a Nora Ephron movie and it's, if you kind of move aside what is the central part of it, but like if you look past Steve Martin and you look past everything he's doing, it's actually a movie about a woman raising two kids while going through a divorce who meets a man through work 
that initially drives her crazy, but who she ends up falling for. And I mean, it's like the most it's classic every rom-com ever. Yeah. It's the most classic rom-com setup in the world. You know, but, and that's do you happening know, do you, with this dressing of Goodfellas too. But do you know what else it is? I think, I think it's Pygmalion because it, go on. Vinny, Vinny <laughs> comes into Barney Coopersmith's life at a point where he's very low, you yes. know, his, his, his wife just left him, left him and his career is stagnant and he's fine with his, his career being stagnant because he is a stagnant man. And Vinny is unwittingly forming him into, um, into his best self, you know, like yeah, which, le- le- leave no, that, that, is- that, that, that anal shit behind and become this cool, free, free flowing, awesome dude who gets the girl. Oh, I still got the sense that Barney Cooper Smith was all about anal. <laughs> you know what? There's some subtext there. I think there is. <laughs> but but no, I, I think that you're you're on it, too, because, yeah, that's all set up in the scene where his wife leaves him, too, where she says that he has a routine for everything. He has a routine for the way that he eats pancakes. Like Barney Cooper Smith is a guy who is endlessly just like stuck in a rut and his whole life is utterly predictable and boring. And yeah, he meets a guy that, yeah, he either wittingly or unwittingly starts to imitate, you know, and become more and more. It's completely unwittingly. He straight up puts new clothes on the man. There was something, there was something quote unquote tragic about his socks, which I I don't know what's wrong with the man's (laughs) socks, but puts, puts them in the, puts them in the suit. But I will say, because I, you know, because of um, because this is Silver Linings playback and because of things being maligned, I will say that there were parts of this movie where um, it didn't really take a microscope to see that was dumb and lazy. And to uh, th- there was a segment that started into each life, a little rain must fall. And then it was just raining and nothing Excuse really me. bad happened to anyone in that scene. It was just, it's raining. Excuse me. The full title card is even in San Diego in parentheses. Okay. Pardon. Yes. Because the weather is so <laughs> nice though. So that's but hilarious. Yes. Too. Yeah. It literally just rains. Like, no, I mean, I think that that's the, I, I don't even know if I'd malign it, but I, I do think what you, you're, you keep touching on, which is worth mentioning is again, it's a, uh, a sort of unofficial sequel or to Goodfellas or Goodfellas is a prequel to it or however you want to look at it. But like without any of the stakes that there is essentially no danger ever. And again, the most danger that you get is his great anecdote, which is one of my favorite moments in the entire movie that he tells about his uncle is Alfredo. <laughs> Uh, is interrupted by the two bumbling would-be assassins who are at most a nuisance who show up three times to ineptly right, not right, kill him. Right. Well, no, which which time was that that they showed up? Was it when were they were in um, the most ab- abandoned dance club in New York City? Yes, <laughs> well, right, that one. Where well, it was yeah, just four they, people in this nightclub. Yeah, the, so the three, just to, we can run through them. The first one is, yeah, they they... They show up at the top of the steps of this empty dance club. <laughs> it looked like a ballroom and nobody's there. And they're posing at the top of the steps, like in the most dramatic fashion. And then Barney shoots the chandelier. Then the second time is in the courtroom uh, where we get again. It's funny. And I get it, Andy, because you didn't grow up with it. But it, the, all the lines that are forever in my head of... uh take my keys, take my gun, take me like when he runs off with the, uh, the local policewoman, but, uh, they show up again. I think at the top, they're in like the balcony of the courtroom still never. These guys never walk close to him. They always have to be in an elevated position dramatically before. They and in can... a post Jack Ruby world, there's no excuse for that. <laughs> and, then, and then, yeah, the third one is they show up at the very end. He's telling the story about Christmas morning. How all he wanted was a bicycle and his uncle Alfredo promised to get him one. And they show up. To interrupt the story, he does a, a dramatic like, barrel roll, grabs Barney's gun, shoots both of their guns out of their hand, they're arrested, and then he finishes the story. And that's a wrap on them. Which, yep. I yep. 
don't think I ever connected, even though I've seen this movie a million times until now, that they are the guys at the end that Carol Kane and the first wife are now married to. <laughs> are those guys they've they've also been relocated to the mm -hmm. apparently only town that the fbi sends former mafia guys to yeah they're all in san diego yeah they're all there well and i think that that i think i mean I, we've almost pivoted already but i think that gets to maybe another reason that this movie doesn't get the love it deserves is because everything is so low stakes mm -hmm. and because there isn't like such there isn't like a conflict. You have several characters that learn, grow and change throughout the movie, but uh, there isn't like a set conflict. And, you know, um, people like that in a movie. People like a like a, a man versus man or something like that in a movie. I, I do think that, again, I love this movie for what it is, but I think I could ad can admit that it might benefit from some actual element of danger. <laughs> Yeah, or some element of of conflict. There isn't yeah. really as much conflict as there is in the movie. There isn't any real conflict. It's Vinny, you need to behave and he won't behave. And um and then something I don't remember. No, that's it. Because even with um, you know, with uh, Rick Moranis and Joan Cusack, the conflict is I'm in I'm in charge of this witness and you're trying to prosecute him. So the really the only thing that happens in the movie is Vinny won't stay out of the spotlight. That's really it. Yeah. But then the movie itself doesn't really ever punish him for that either. Like it, no. it essentially by the end, it's like, but that's great because he's like, you're supposed to love Vinny. And so therefore he it's interesting because the movie, the the conflict is whether or not to ever hold him accountable, but the movie itself very much does not want to hold him accountable for everything, which I am fine with, but that does kill any stakes that the movie could have. And I don't, I wouldn't even know how to put him in, you know, if you yeah. make the stakes too high, then it, this is just a mob movie at that point. You right. Know? It and is That's good not what they were going for. That's <laughs> right. Point. It's Goodfellas. So like, I don't know. I, I wouldn't know how to get out of that conundrum, but you don't really need to because it's a really charming, really funny movie, I think. So, I so, you know, you want it to have attention, but in order to give this movie attention or really give it stakes. I think you kind of ruined the movie that you have. Yes. Yeah. I actually, I think that it would in fact be a great double feature with Goodfellas because you watch Goodfellas and that is one of my favorite movies of all time. Goodfellas is amazing, but it's a pretty brutal movie to watch. And by the end of it, you're you're feeling kind of like like you've watched a lot of a movie and that it's a very particular Scorsese experience. I think this is a nice cool down after that, that it's like <laughs> you get up with that and then this like sends you out of the theater on a nice happy note after that. So I, I think they work well together. I think so, too. Um, I've thought I've thought this since my first viewing of the movie back in the day. I'm wondering if y'all agree. Those those kids, Joan Cusack's kids are annoying as hell. And I really dislike them every yes. time I see them. Okay. They're they're not great. I it's an interesting thing where it's like even when he's taking their wallet where I'm like, I'd be fine if he robbed these kids. Like even at the end, even when he's collecting all the money, I don't really care if they get a stadium because I don't really care about the kids. No, no, fuck these kids. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I cared way more about that turtle I saw for a couple seconds. That poor turtle that definitely goes <laughs> down the drain. Making uh, this movie a prequel to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But I, I think, do we all feel good about pivoting? I'm good. All mm -hmm. right. Uh, I think my number one silver lining for this movie is Rick Moranis. Uh, like, this is... I love Rick Moranis. I'm a huge fan. I think he is one of the most underrated comedic actors yes. of the la last quarter of the 20th century. Agree. Um, but man, he 
this is the best acting performance I think I've seen him do. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be if if people haven't seen this and they need a reason to watch it. It is the fact that, yeah, I think it's one of, if not the best performance of Rick Moranis. Yeah, that they're I mean, he might be funnier in Ghostbusters or something, but like as or strange, bro, or yeah, but like he's the leading man in this. He's carrying it in a way where he gets to be suave and charming. He gets to kick the shit out of Daniel Stern. Like, which something we all want to do at some point. I mean, him and ten uh, year old Macaulay Culkin are the two best at it. But like, we yeah. all we all would love a crack. But that's like, I think, and one of the just really savvy choices this movie makes is to at at its core, Barney Cooper Smith is still a very good FBI agent. Yes, and it never sells him out on that regard. Even though it's a, it's actually a very delicate balancing act in that. Vinny constantly gets the better of him, but he never looks like he's bumbling. Right. I think that was just a really savvy choice by the filmmakers because it'd be a lot easier to go the other way. Yes. And I also one of my I mean, every scene in this movie is my favorite scene in this movie. But uh, the scene uh, when they get off the airplane and he's explaining to him that you can't tell anyone you're in town. You have to stay low key. And there is his entire family is waiting at the terminal to meet him. And he plays this like crocodile tears. Don't let my mother see me in handcuffs so that he can then once he gets out of the handcuffs, the entire family distracts Barney in a way that isn't again, that you get while it's all happening and you understand why Barney's messing this up. But Vinny is gone. And, you know, he's explaining the people are like saying that he invented the rotary engine. Oh, it's one of that's one of my favorite lines in the movie is I, I thought Wankel invented the rotary engine. <laughs> yeah. And then just the mom just doing the like. Hand. Yeah. And then his mom gestures for him to go fuck himself. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's all beautiful. Uh, but yeah, Rick Moranis is great in this movie. Him and Joan Cusack together have really great chemistry. I love that she's six feet taller than him. Oh my God. Hilarious. Uh, I look, um, as far as silver linings go, every single thing that Steve Martin says or does in this movie, I love so much. Every line that he says, every gesture that he makes this character, he gets it and he plays it in the cheesiest, like most over the top, Italian mafia so stereotype. Is it, isn't it just like so perfectly like vaudevillian of him? Yes. Like, like a, a vaudeville actor put into, you know, the late 80s Southern California try, trying to be funny in the only way he knows how. Like when he's being interrogated and um, he kind of fades off answering a question and just starts bouncing that basketball. God <laughs> damn it. Is that funny? Yeah. And then right after that, you know, why, why do you have like, what, what about all the books in your trunk? Well, I was, I was thinking about writing my story and this, this book is going to teach me how to write my story. Okay. Why did you have 25 copies? In case I wanted to read it more than once, <laughs> like way over the top, way, way funnier than it had to be. But yeah, his, just also his ability to she has him dead to rights every time and he has no case. But his unflappable ability to still spin a web of bullshit that she's not even buying. It's not for anyone. It's just the two yeah. of them in a room. But he will never admit that he has done anything bad and just, yeah, like, you know, people drink too much. <laughs> so there's two cases of liquor in the back and, it, and then she's like it belo the car belongs to the reverend so-and-so of the presbyterian church are you sure that he's a minister uh-huh i know a guy who makes a living making people phony ministers for two dollars i can make you a phony minister you know <laughs> yeah it's um and the fact that like this is one of those parts that only Steve Martin could be as hammy as Steve Martin is being in this role. Yeah, he's he's not a person like he's a cartoon character, but it, he makes it. It's also Steve Martin has always had a unique ability. That is my favorite thing about him. 
which is that he can be completely unlikable as a character, but you love him. Mm -hmm. That's his whole career. Yeah, that it's he has some ability to be charmingly horrible. And and again, that's why he was in, uh, you know, he plays the dentist in Little Shop of Horrors, which is the worst character in that. Right. Is that character has zero redeeming qualities. He is one. He's not even a character. He's just an obstacle. Yeah, he's the first like he's cannon fodder. He's the guy that you need to kill first to, you know, get a taste for it, to send Seymour down that path. But yeah, like Steve Martin yeah, he's completely over the top. He's like just ridiculous. And no, I, there's I, no one else that could do. That. There's no one else that could do that, which is insane to me that he he was going to play the Barney part because, yeah, it was never going to work with anyone else in that part, except maybe Ray Liotta if they could have gotten him. But I think that Ray Liotta would have been too gritty for the way this movie is shot and lit and edited and everything else that. Yes, it would have it would it would have been like almost like, uh, you know, just one of those cheesy movies where it's like one character's in black and white and everybody else is in color like it, that's how much the contrast would have been if you had Ray Liotta reprising his role as Henry Hill <laughs> yeah um, because not not only is it a reprisal of that role but Ray Liotta on his own even if Goodfellas didn't exist Ray Liotta on his own is intimidating you yes. know is intimidating and a little bit scary I mean I think that's why it make that's what makes Ray Liotta so hot and um <laughs> uh, so yeah, like that's what I love about what they did with this character is they because Steve Martin was playing it because he was so charming and funny. Um, they had to keep putting in these moments where they reminded you he is he is a bad guy. Yeah, like he's standing there in the airport like Barney, what are you doing? This is my mother. She's crying. Are you not going to go let me hug my mother? And then he fucks off. Yeah. And he gets him the suit and they're in the hotel room and he's. You know, he's telling me, he's telling him, well, if you're just going to sit there in the shirt, but the pants are getting wrinkled, like you're all, you're getting all messed up. So I'll go take your pants to get them cleaned and you order the food. Oh, awesome. Cause we're friends now because we just had a, um, getting new outfits montage and then he fucks <laughs> off again because he's a rascal. He's yeah. a dirty little rascal. Yeah. I also, can I just, I don't know why this line that, that I go through lines in this movie, but when he first goes down to that bar and he says, hey, bartender, make me that drink you made the night Mary was shot. I think it was a Bloody Mary. Like, just fantastic. everyone laughs. That's I don't get it. I mean, I get it. But like, what's it funny about really, it? It doesn't really make sense, but it does. Like, it, it makes sense. Well, I think it makes sense that like Vinny doesn't get that Mary got murdered. <laughs> yeah. And that he had ordered a Bloody Mary. He doesn't like the fact that you can see him not making the connection that he's not trying to make a pun. Yeah. But he makes a pun. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that is it. But yeah. It's, no, it's, the, it's yeah. like it is the epitome of like no pun intended intended. Basically. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it's it's that's good writing that nor that, you know what? Hot take that Nora Ephron knows how to write a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Especially dialogue. I think that Nora Ephron is good at dialogue. I mean, scorching hot take here, but let, let, let's let's put it out there. I don't think she has a future. Uh, I, I do love the idea of them writing the movie simultaneously. I wonder if they were worried that they'd be too similar. <laughs> you know that uh, that uh, Nicholas Pelleggi dropped the meat cute between uh, <laughs> totally had to rewrite the meat cute between De Niro and Ray Liotta. <laughs> well, but no, I think I think he took note from the turtle and that's why he put that Billy Bat scene in there. That's probably what it originally the turtle said, go home and get your fucking shine box. <laughs> uh, by the way, since we mentioned Moranis and we mentioned Steve Martin, we have to mention Joan Cusack, who oh, yeah. is amazing Great. in this movie and who like it spars with both of them fantastically like her her interrogation scenes with Steve Martin work so well because again of how much she never she's the only character in this entire movie that is never charmed by him and yet yeah. she still changes her shoes because she does realize that he sometimes has the right idea about things but she never quite drops the guard on him no i i think I mean, Joan Cusack is, I can't even call her underrated, but I think she is an underrated actress, but I don't think anyone plays like duck on the water where 
Like you see the smooth, but you can tell that she's barely holding it together. Like it's this character similar to the character that she plays in School of Rock, and similar to the character she plays in Gross Point Blank, where there's like she is just barely holding on to this chaotic world. And I think she does it the best of almost anybody, like playing that that sort of put upon, but it's like, no, we're getting through this by hook or by crook. Um, I think she's one of the best at it. And I think that she does it again here and it's awesome. Totally. And I, I actually think the the turtle scene is maybe the best example of that because in the way that it's written, and no offense to Nora Ephron, who is great, but it's like that is a little bit of a tough sell of you have to somehow convince us that you dumped a turtle down the garbage disposal without noticing. And the only way that works is because Joan Cusack is utterly convincing in the fact that she's having a breakdown in that moment. And so she's completely, she's just frantically washing dishes and she's upset at her ex-husband and she's not paying attention and it works. It works too, because she kind of, you know, well, you know, they, they showed her drinking a glass of wine, which would probably do that to, to someone who doesn't drink wine a lot. And, and also I liked the, um, the fact that you're right. She was the only person who was unflappable against um, Steve Martin's raw charisma, but who does she who does she fall for? But Barney Coopersmith, and why does she fall for him? It's because he's acting more like Vinny, you right. know. So it's it's totally there that she she knows the guy's charming. She just cares about her job and justice more than she does about um, you know giving this little rascal what he wants. Well, she also is more likely to fall for Barney Cooper Smith because while she wants a little bit of that bad boy edge and that charm and the we're going to dance the merengue, you know, on the fly, Uh uh I think ultimately she respects and wants the guy who's organized and has a detailed plan for how he eats pancakes because that's her too because she that's the thing is she can't be influenced by Vinny directly, but she wants some of that Vinny you know, lightheartedness, but she wants Barney because he's more like her. Yeah, it's it's the balance, right? You yeah. want you want a guy who's got his stuff together, but also he's you know he's gotta be a little bad. Yeah. He's be a little bad. He's be a little bit of a bad yeah. boy. Yeah. What'd be a rude dude. All right. Well we have to talk about look, not just my favorite scene in this movie, but one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema. And it's why I played it yeah. at the top and even though most of it is visual, and I still just played the music. The scene where he meets and falls in love with Carol Kane is a perfect scene from start to finish. There was no doubt. I had yeah. I had no doubt the clip you were going to play. Yeah, of course. I thought for a moment, well, he might he might want to feature a scene that has both Steve Martin and Rick Moranis in it. So maybe it'll be the social security number. No, no, he's going to oh, probably God, play that, that scene. So good. <laughs> He's going to play that scene that he like we quote to each other constantly. <laughs> it's dangerous for you to be here in the frozen food section <laughs> because you could melt all this stuff. And it's if, for, Carol for those Kane, of you who haven't who haven't you know seen the movie. If you want to go listen to that clip, when you hear that music go, bwah, 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 that's that's Carol Kane in a little short skirt wagging her butt, pushing a shopping cart down the frozen food it, aisle. It's Tex Avery, like it is one hundred percent. He is the wolf, and she is a Tex Avery woman who's just like her hips are shaking as she's walking down the aisle. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, if we want to backtrack and malign, never enough Carol Kane. No, never Carol enough. Kane has the greatest introduction in not just this movie, but again, in one of the top in all of cinema. But then, yeah, she's not in this movie, like barely it's at all. It's a cameo. Yeah, it's a cameo. And then they get married. And oh, that scene is that scene is is perfect. Which also worth noting that. The reason that the scene exists where he calls Barney and says, I got married and Barney says, you're already married. I didn't use my real name is verbatim what Henry Hill really did and said to his lawyer when he got married to another woman under his assumed like, you know, 
witness protection identity he literally thompson identity yeah he literally (laughs) did the same thing and said it's okay i didn't marry her under my real name that really happened to henry hill so that's all fantastic yeah yeah, that's great and Um, i love the way he says it he goes um my name's todd and that's italian which it's not no my name's todd that's italian for extra special and she swoons it's like well you're you're talking about your dick right I, is he I talking about even, his dick or just I, like I the way he, he uses it? What is he talking about? I think he literally could have said anything to her. I think as soon <laughs> as he said you could melt all this stuff that she was going home with him. And he, okay. it's just now we have groceries. So we have to say some amount of words until we get to this cashier. And then we are immediately having sex in the parking lot. I think right, is what right. happened. Okay, so we, we officially don't know what he meant by extra special. It it was just a sexy thing he could say right there. Yeah, it's... No, and I think it's also that he's, like, his character is such a narcissist. Yeah. That he just believes that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also, it plays into, though, which is a running joke, because he says that to Barney at some point, too, when they, I think when they meet the two girls in the club that they dance with, that... No matter what your name is, the girls will always, you know, yeah. say that they love your name uh, so that that's he knows that and he's wielding that to say his name, his completely neutral name in the sexiest way possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Todd. Yeah. Todd is definitely Sicilian. Also, yeah. can we Todd Wilkinson? <laughs> well, well, we're talking to just about names every time that other guy and I don't know the actor's name calls rick moranis dicky and he Dickie. gets upset is pure gold it's great and that's that bill, bill irwin that's bill irwin Bur- yeah. bill irwin yes yeah uh, yeah i think bill irwin and bill hickey are really doing a lot of their best work in this movie also bill irwin so rick like uh steve martin's dancing is phenomenal but bill irwin's solo dancing in this is also bill irwin is a trained dancer bill irwin Irwin was a a ballet dancer yeah and he's also one of the world's foremost clowns (laughs) also also um, like french clown school Nice. Also, best friends with Robin Williams. Bill Irwin's been around for a minute. He's uh, yeah. I don't. He should be a person you should know. Yeah, actually, I'm gonna write that yeah. Down. actually, I saw I saw um Bill Irwin in um Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh, oh no, kidding! Yeah, yeah I just I, I just watched I, that this past week. Actually, he was playing the uh Richard Burton role, and uh Kathleen Turner was Liz Taylor, and it was amazing. That that is amazing. Yeah, I just rewatched that movie this past week. No kidding. I gotta see that because I I love it when other people play a role that Richard Burton played because then I can see it done well. I look, <laughs> man, I I will say Richard Queen Burton. Queen of the Hoppies. No, let's all stop with Richard Burton sucked at look, acting. I'm sorry, y'all. I, he just did. <laughs> I will defend him in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I think Me he too. is okay. great okay. in that movie because Here's the thing. I think he was actually drunk. And so I don't think he was acting. He was really married to Elizabeth Taylor and really drunk. So I don't even think he needed to act. He just was <laughs> yeah, living his true. truth. Yeah. That yeah. He was a, he was okay too in the longest day. But again, I think he was actively drunk. Yeah. Well, no, I, I was, I read a if bunch you've of seen stuff. Richard Burton, he was actively drunk. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he died in his 50s of you know like severe alcoholism too but like uh yeah it's, i was reading a bunch of stuff about that movie because i yeah molly had never seen it and we rewatched it and uh, i like it's all the trivia of that is like he and elizabeth taylor had contracts where uh they would basically roll in at 10 a.m spend two hours in makeup then go to like a two-hour lunch and then show up he'd show up like drunk to set like at 2 p.m to start the day Jeez, Louise. Yeah. And then be Richard Burton of all people. Yeah. I don't get it. He's most famous for those roles that he did uh, in Shakespeare movies, and he's really bad. <laughs> I wonder if he's the basis of that Frasier bit where uh, the, one, yeah. the, the guy that they staged the one man yeah. Shakespeare. I think that was Rene Aubergenois. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. We have gotten far off track, but continuing our laser focus on the silver Langs playback podcast <laughs> but yeah bill uh, irwin bill irwin's is fantastic great. yeah yeah he's awesome i love bill irwin um this movie is, this movie's like if you don't have that natural affinity for it 
you might not pick it up watching it now almost 30 years later, but it's a it's a it's worth a watch. I'll say that much. Yeah, I'll give you three possibilities. And if none of the if you've never seen it and none of these appeal to you, I don't know what to tell you. But like if, as Lars was saying earlier, you are sort of into this Rick Moranis uh, reexamination, like we love and celebrate all of his movies and we want to look at him. This is one of the best that like just performance wise, it's worth watching it for Rick Moranis. Uh, If you are a fan of Steve Martin and you've seen all of his other movies and you haven't seen this, it's a great Steve Martin role. If you are a fan of Joan Cusack and you haven't seen this, it's a great Joan Cusack movie. So you have all three of those options, as well as if you are a fan of Nora Ephron, it's a really good Nora Ephron movie. So if any of those are an entry point to you, you will like the movie for the reason that that sells you on it. If none of those appeal to you, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've, you know, I've been sitting here kind of, uh, marinating in it. Um, uh, Andy, the, when you said this is probably one of his best performances in that, you know, his character, when when we most of the movie, his character is this two dimensional sort of you know stick in the mud. He's just a fucking drip, right? But that's kind of the point of him. We're kind of watching a movie where, um, this guy get, is trying to fight his third dimension. He doesn't know how to relate to other people, and not in this over the top sort of um indie film way that we experienced in the 90s where most movies were about someone who can't relate to other people and um he he all he knows is what he does and he just does the things that he does he has a you know his wife while he is leaving him says he has a system for everything and that's kind of how he's going through life is he has a system for everything and and Vinny comes into his life who has a system for nothing the uh, Vinny is chaos Kenny is just id. He's just pure id. I just want the things that make me happy and I will manipulate every situation that I'm in in order to procure those things. And you see no real relationship develop in between them because neither one of them knows how to deal with other people other than a system or getting what they want. And by the end... I think you can tell just by the way it's progressed. You you kind of watch, you watch Barney Cooper Smith. You watch you know Rick Moranis, um, look at Joan Cusack dancing on the beach, and he's just enjoying watching this person enjoying herself. You know he's in, and then they and then they hook up, and then he throws Daniel Stern out of the house. Like he's becoming he's becoming a real person, and then at the end when um uh Vinny wields that pistol. In real cowboy fashion, after saying he doesn't know how to fire a gun, um, Barney goes up to him and says, I, I thought you didn't know how to use a gun. And Vinny cuts him off and says, I lied. And <laughs> and Barney just takes the gun and kind of nods like, OK, now now Barney Cooper Smith knows the way the world works, you know, is like. People do what they do and you have no control over them and they will be chaotic and weird and you need to accept that in order to accept other people into your life. I'm way I'm reading way more into that than Nora Ephron did, I think. But that's that's kind of the way I saw it. No, she thought about all of it. You think so? She's good. You know, yeah. She probably fucking did. Really? She did. Man, like She's Nora good. Ephron. She's good at stuff. Yeah. All right. But I I think we did it. Oh, we definitely did it. Yeah. I also, although I do want to say it was a disappointing Christmas on many levels is a just, ah, like beautiful. Just yeah. yeah. <laughs> plus uncle, no bicycle. Yeah. My uncle Alfredo dead under the Christmas tree. Plus no bicycle. It plus, was a disappointing <laughs> Christmas on many levels. That is just beautiful. That I aspire to ever write a joke that clean and perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, um, so you guys want to do another hour on Temple of Doom, right? Cause I'm really down for that. Yeah. Right we're going to go back there. We're going to do Temple of Doom and we're going to okay, do dirty work again with you. Here we right go. Now that you're here. We yeah. go. For for the uh, the Patreon subscribers, yeah, here we totally. go, Patreon. Hello, yeah. real cops. <laughs> that, that was a, that was a setup. It's my favorite joke in that whole movie. It's fantastic. <laughs> All right, but uh, Lars, I understand that you have a podcast that uh, is doing some kind of really big tournament at the moment. 
Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. But, you know, right now, if you have never listened to Hobo Radio, now's the time to start. Now is our annual. We're getting good. <laughs> finally. Now's the time to start. 16 it's... years in, we're finally, <laughs> finally cracked the code. I think so. Here we go. It's it's the Mabel Memorial Hobo Madness Tournament. Yep. That Did I it. say it? You said it perfectly. Word Sweet. perfect. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's a bracket. I, you, what you're saying to yourself right now is, okay, a bracket, because all these podcasts do brackets. Yes, again, we've been doing it longer. Why haven't you heard of it? Because we've never been famous. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a lot of fun. Um, uh, if you like this show, I recommend it. Um, but, you know, uh, ser- well... Um, Andy and Joel are, are a part of it, obviously, because Joel is a co-host and Andy is a frequent guest. And also, um, everyone on there is a previous guest of this show, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that Jonathan's is true. Jonathan's never been on. Oh, have we never had Jonathan on? Oh. No. Yeah. Or Marty, actually. Oh, wow. Well. We should do that. We should fix that. Yeah. What here? You point. know what? They haven't been on officially, but they can be on spiritually with this. Bingle balls. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um yeah they with i guess yeah the we have to ask guys are on there which if you're not listening to we have to ask that's also on the peak sloth uh network um but yeah it's it's a lot it's a lot of fun we're breaking down how um i guess this year how um characters go against um wild animals that have appeared in movies and some that have not yeah it's basically people versus animals action heroes the one of the round one matchups that I think it kind of encapsulates the whole thing is John Wick fights cocaine bear in round one. So I think if that doesn't sell you on yeah. watching this, listening to this <laughs> yeah, episode, listen. literally nothing will. It's yeah. a bunch of fun. I got I got to admit, it was more fun than I thought it was going to be. I had pulled up um, all these statistics on these particular animals, you know, size, um, weight, activity, just like kind of the things about some of these animals. I needed none of those notes because um uh, everyone, everyone participating in the tournament just came with their a game, a lot of insight. And I laughed a lot and it was, um, I, the way we ended up is it, it's one of my favorite tournaments. I don't remember a lot of them. Yeah. Also, but it's one MVP of the best was endings. Aaron Fox. Aaron Fox. And usually is if we're being honest. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Um, but this year might be the finest Aaron Fox participation yeah. in any tournament that has. Oh ever my God. They're so insightful. Yeah. And, um, uh, Pat Stork, who usually is involved in these tournaments, um, uh, wasn't this year. And I, uh, when I, but he participated kind of via text. And when I told him that he, he goes, yeah, but don't they always really keep us on track and really come with information that we haven't thought of and yep totally totally and it's also really funny so um yeah you can check that out also um joel i took your advice and i listened to that uh joe rogan podcast and you're right there's a lot of pretty neat ideas i just he's gonna change how you think you know you know i kind of questions yeah yeah you know what i mean questions yeah yeah yeah, it was that was pretty um that was pretty rad i guess i'm hooked on that now (laughs) Yeah, he's great. You know, he he um, I think he's, he's about to break really big in the podcast game. I think I so, think because that combination of his monotone voice and his complete lack of insight on anything, I think is really a powerful combination. I really like how he he bases his opinion on facts that he has made up himself. It's it's you know, I mean, again, with the improv background, I have to respect it that he just, you know, he pulls it from thin air and just creates a world. Well, and I think there's something to be said for immediately agreeing with whoever is closest to you. Yeah. Regardless of what you may have said previously. It's yeah, it's it's a good way to go. I, I haven't so. heard Dan Aykroyd on any other podcast. You know why? He goes on the best podcasts. So we tried to get him. him. We tried to try, we tried oh, so hard for Caddyshack too. To get Dan Aykroyd to answer for what he did. And yeah. he, he refused. Oh my God. We were like, Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> Explain to us what funny is, because apparently you have that answer. There's a lot of examples where I think he might be right, but there's just as many where he's very wrong. By the way, yeah, so I think here, I think his I think his answer to what is funny is all the people I know. <laughs> also, so Lars, this is going to tie it all together. You said you wanted to talk about Temple of Doom, and I think yeah. this is a perfect way to end it. Oh my god, he was, do you think he? Crystal Skull was uh, inspired by Dan Aykroyd's Crystal Vodka? 
Crystal Skull Vodka. Not familiar with that movie. Is this new? I haven't. I haven't heard of it. Oh, well, never mind then. Ghost Blowjob. Bingle Ball. Silver Linings Playback is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. I see there is a new episode of Hobo Radio in my podcast feed. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a Hobo Radio listener can feel. A Hobo Radio listener at the start of a long episode whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope Joel makes a joke about banging Lars's mom. I hope Lars tries and fails to coin a new catchphrase. I hope they talk about Batman. I hope. Hobo Radio is a pop culture podcast on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network. It is available wherever you get your podcasts.